Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Marvin Olasky, Editor-in-Chief of World Magazine. In this episode, we'll talk about compassionate conservatism and the future of American journalism. The Ministry Network Podcast is sponsored by Westminster Theological Seminary. To learn more about their new online programs, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. Now, let's talk with Dr. Olasky. What advice would you give to pastors who are trying to figure out what their part in practicing compassionate conservatism should look like? Well, number one, actually learn how it works and be involved yourself. I'll tell you just one, one experience. I spent some time in Washington also trying to evangelize for compassionate conservatism. And I remember once talking to a group of members of Congress and they were pretty well tracking what I was saying. Most of them were politically conservative. They came in in the Republican Revolution, the so-called of 1995. And they were you know, going along with what I was saying and nodding and so forth until I got to the point and said, hey, if you're going to do this, you really have to be able to talk about this a little bit or at least understand it from your own personal experience. You can't just be issuing your sound bites written by a speechwriter. You should be able to help someone. And then in helping someone, don't do it with cameras rolling, but just go and tutor a child or help a guy in trouble and do it for a while and learn. And then you can refer to it occasionally and it'll be real. And at that point, they, this is a little bit like when Paul in Athens at a certain point in, in Acts 17 starts talking about the same thing happened with, the, uh, with representatives and, and senators that they said, we just don't have time for that. Don't have time for that. So I would say pastors, even megachurch pastors, especially megachurch pastors who are just pretty much executives and Sunday morning preachers, they actually have to go out there and learn something themselves and actually help someone and also learn. And when they've done that, then they can really talk about it or urge members of their congregation to do it. So that's number one. I think they have to actually have experience. And it used to be part of being a pastor, actually a shepherd. And sometimes in big churches, people are not shepherds anymore. They are CEOs, and that's a problem. But secondly, don't go beyond what the Bible says. And also don't say less than what the Bible says. We have a metaphor. We have with our world reporters a conference call for all our reporters every couple of weeks and we'll talk about certain issues that are arising. And we believe in what we call biblical objectivity, not just, I mean, we want to quote everyone accurately, we want to show everyone's position truthfully, but we don't think that objectivity comes just if you quote a person A and a person B. That's not objectivity because both of them may be very wrong and often are. Biblical objectivity is trying to follow what the Bible says and apply what the Bible says. So we want to be careful to not speak beyond what the Bible says and also not say less what the Bible says. And the metaphor we use in trying to apply biblical objectivity to stories as they arise is a metaphor from uh, Whitewater Rapids, which I've done a little bit of. There are six classes of Whitewater Rapids. Class one is really easy stuff, maybe just a little bit of rippling water gently down the stream. Even I can be a captain of a boat in a class one rapids. It goes, they become progressively harder. Class two are, there's more white water, you could be thrown out of the boat, but then you float downstream, someone will pick you up. Class three is a small waterfall, let's say just a five-foot drop, 
with a little bit of swirl going on, a whirlpool action, but no big trouble. I mean, I have done a class three without getting myself or other people killed. But then it gets harder and harder and harder. It goes all the way up to class six, which is going over a huge waterfall and you're probably gonna be dead. So that's something to be avoided. A class one issue is something where the Bible is really clear. For example, you know, you shall not commit adultery. To my knowledge, there is, there may be now, if the Yellow Pages were still around, maybe I'd find something. Maybe there is a Christians for Adultery organization. I don't think so. I haven't heard of one and such. It's very clear. Adultery is a class one issue. Now, it may be sometimes what you consider as adultery. For example, are now a legally married gay couple, are they committing adultery? Well, biblically, yes, they are. That's part of it. Other people would say we want to skate over that in some way. But still in world, a class one issue is a class one issue. The Bible is very clear. We may not like it all the time, but nevertheless, the Bible is clear, and we're going to present things from a biblical perspective. Again, we will quote an abortionist and try to let people understand why this person thinks that abortion is good. We will certainly, we'll quote gay people, we'll quote all kinds of folks, but we'll make it clear in the article that there is a biblical position on this. And this does not mean that these people are beyond God's help because God was merciful to me, a communist. God can be merciful and is merciful to lots of other people. But still, class one rapids will have a clear position. The Bible is explicit. Class two is where the Bible is implicit. Class three is where people can quote things from the Bible that would seem to justify a variety of different positions, but using the whole counsel of God, reading very carefully. I would say that poverty fighting, there is a Christian understanding of poverty fighting, and I would call that a class three issue. And there is a way to do it. Some folks might disagree with me. Jim Wallace might disagree with me. And he and I have debated this a little bit. But nevertheless, in world, we are going to try to emphasize that the real way, the basic way to help people is not just materially, but spiritually as well. Both of those are essential. And this goes on all the way to class six issues, gets harder and harder and harder. Class four issue is something where the Bible isn't really clear on it, but there is a biblical understanding of human nature, and we can apply that. Uh, class five would be, we really can't get a whole lot out of the Bible that directly applies, but there is, we, we can study history and we can learn a lot from that and apply that. And then class six would be, hey, we're pretty much on our own. A class six issue, some international trade issues may be class six issues where they're very complex. Where to locate a particular highway or toll road may be a class six issue. And there we would look to the experts and maybe quote from toll road expert A and toll road expert B. We're not going to say that the Bible has a position on toll roads. And where I got this, I became a Christian in 1976. The first thing I was confronted with at this particular church was a stack of documents from an organization that may have been called Christian Voice that was raiding members of the House of Representatives and Senators on their Christian beliefs by how they voted on particular pieces of legislation. And one of the pieces of legislation they had a vote on was whether they believed the Panama Canal should be returned administratively to Panama or whether the United States should still have full legal authority over it. And, you know, try as I might, scrutinize as hard as I might, I could not find anything in the Bible that directly told me about who should be in charge of the Panama Canal. I may have missed Book 67, the Book of Panama, but I just did not find anything there. So I was somewhat amused that this was seen as an issue. Now, you can certainly, there are certain things you can learn historically, class five issues about 
dictatorships and so forth. But nevertheless, this is not an issue that someone from the pulpit should be speaking about. I think it's fully legit for someone in the pulpit to be speaking about abortion. I think the Bible is clear. This is a terrible thing. And I would be disappointed if a pastor never refers to that at all. So, you know, that's the way we tend to look at things. I would say the pastors should be quite willing to speak and speak powerfully about class one and class two rapids where the Bible is explicit or implicit. I think pastors should explore class three and class four issues, but be certainly tentative in what they're saying. And I would say the pastors in the pulpit should stay away from class five or class six issues, and not only in the pulpit. I mean, they should not be taking a political position on things that are the Bible isn't clear about, and they should also not be endorsing candidates. At World, I'm not a fan. I know there are some Christian groups that are very much in favor of repealing the Johnson Amendment, and they make a big thing of this, and actually would say this is a Christian position to repeal the Johnson Amendment. I'm actually happy that pastors cannot endorse or are not supposed to legally endorse candidates from the pulpit. That's not our job. So I'd stay, stay within our lanes, stay within our spheres, to quote Abraham Kuyper a little bit, and there's plenty for pastors to do, exegeting the Bible, opening it up to people, paying special attention to the Bible, and sometimes applying it to a particular issue where the Bible is clear without getting into class five or class six issues or endorsing particular candidates. That is so helpful. So as we think about compassionate conservatism, it's important to practice it and remember that it's really a class three issue. Yes, it's a class three issue. And, you know, and disagree as I do with Jim Wallace on some things, I would not say that Jim Wallace isn't a Christian. I would not say that what he's saying is terrible because tell you, the, you know, Texas, there's the famous Texas two-step. And the two steps, I think, whenever I've talked about poverty, when I'm not being stupid, is number one, be generous, and number two, be discerning. I once spoke to uh, a group of PCA deacons in Atlanta, and I assumed that we all were together on step one, be generous. And so I went right to step two without explaining anything about step one. And it turns out that they were suspicious of me, or some of them were suspicious of me in some ways, because I had been identified with a conservative magazine. And since I didn't go into step one, they thought I was saying, no, be stingy. And no, that's not the case at all. So you always have to have step one and step two. And I would think that's, I would recommend that to pastors also. But sometimes if you just say step one, then there are now books out. This wasn't the case 20 or some years ago, but there's a whole library out now with titles like When Helping Hurts which is actually the title of a very good book, but other books showing that you need to be discerning. But I would never say, well, since helping hurts, don't be helpful. Brian doesn't say that either. So our goal is to be helpful, but our goal is to be helpful in a really truthful, helping way, not just a way that makes us feel good, but may actually hurt a person. That is so helpful. Thank you very much for that. You've also been a big advocate for this idea of the reformation of journalism. Can you tell us a little bit about why this reformation is needed and what you hope journalism will look like on the other side of change? Well, sure. American journalism right now is in a mess. I think journalists have a lower trust rating in public opinion polls than even used car salesmen. It's really low. I mean, you know, I think one poll I saw, 9% maybe, think that what they, just a general statement about is journalism truthful, which is sad for a whole lot of reasons. One being just historically that American journalism was Christian journalism from colonial days up until about the 1840s. 
And I've written a couple of books on this and have actually looked at the newspapers themselves, which before the Civil War had very good rag content. So you look at a newspaper, by the way, from the late 19th century, and it'll crumble in your hands. But, you know, I've looked at newspapers from the 1600s, which are great. You can still page it and they're easy to read and so forth. So uh, I've really enjoyed that type of research. But you go through it and it's Christian journalism. And people are very explicit in applying things to class one or class two things. I mean, sometimes they may be more explicit even than we would like in terms of making the assumption that a particular tornado came from God and thus went on a particular route. Now, certainly God is sovereign over tornadoes. And God uses tornadoes to do his will for the good of his people. But I would not go as far as the colonial journalists sometimes did in saying that because a person blasphemed in the morning, that tornado was aiming right at his house at night. I mean, it was probably a useful thing for him to learn. But, you know, what Jesus says about the wall at Siloam, which falls down and 18 people are killed, why is it it's not because necessarily of their sin or the sin of their parents, but it's a sign from God, it's a reminder from God, it's God helping us so that every one of those dead 18 people was a missionary and evangelist from the dead to the living, essentially, telling us to think about our own sin and get our house in order as best we can through God's grace. So anyway, that's what journalism was, very strongly Christian journalism. Things changed in the 1840s as Unitarianism became more prominent, as a Unitarian editor named Horace Greeley became probably the leading editor in journalism at that point. As a lot of other things were happening, journalism became secularized, and journalists still were trustworthy in some ways, but at particular times in the 20th century, they've become heavily ideological during the 1930s, heavily on the left, Uh, went away for a while, came back in the 1960s, and I think conservatives are rightly up in arms about liberal biases in the press, but I think all Christians should be up in arms about the secular biases in the press. That's the fundamental thing. And whether we're liberal or conservative politically, there's a real problem. When journalists, when you have 50 facts and you have room, let's say, for 10 facts, then which facts are you going to emphasize, which are you not? Let's say people have been ardently praying. But that basically, in terms of your worldview, is in terms of importance, is fact number 49. It's not going to get into your article. That's all going to be ignored. So there's a problem there. When journalists look at problems of addiction and alcoholism or poverty generally, and emphasize only material transfers rather than spiritual needs, that's also a problem. So we're getting a distorted, on all kinds of subjects, we're getting distortions from journalism right now. And then in terms of particular people, who we are supposed to esteem and who we are supposed to despise, that also tends to be very biased. So you can see all these things. And a book I wrote 30 years ago had the name Prodigal Press, which I think is still, I've had terrible titles on some of my books, but this one I think was good because... Journalism is really the prodigal son of Christianity. And it's out right now feeding the pigs and eating, you know, what the pigs don't want, basically. That may be a little bit too harsh, but it's sad. It's sad because I like reporters so much. The reporters are fun to talk with. They see interesting things. And when they become propagandists, that's not good. In fact, it's very bad. And there are some conservatives have that tendency also in a different way. At this point, I I do not trust MSNBC. I do not trust Fox News either. When our readers tell me, and and this is nice in one sense to hear, oh, I love World, I love your daily podcast, I read the magazine, I read the website, you're the only thing I read or listen to, I tend to react with horror. No, you need to read other stuff too. 
So I recommend to people reading a magazine on the left like The Atlantic, which I think is sometimes propagandistic, but there are some very good, honest reporters who work there. They see things, of course, through their own presuppositions, but as far as they're actually observing and doing street-level reporting and not just up at suite level, they're doing useful stuff. So, yeah, read The Atlantic, read something on the right like National Review, and read World, which is, I think, a compassionate conservative publication, but I'd, I'd put Christ first and conservative second. And so we alienate Republican politicians and conservative politicians all over the place. I could say we alienate people left and right, and it's actually true. So, yeah, so the reformation of journalism is important for secular journalism. It's also important for a lot of Christian publications also, which sometimes try to say, here's God's word on class five or class six things. They don't talk about class five or six, but they go further than the Bible in some places and say, if you don't get in line behind this conservative position, then you're anti-Christian. And then sometimes there are Christian publications that just want to do public relations for God, and he doesn't need our public relations. So that type of stuff is, we sometimes wax a little bit sarcastic when we can actually see these people are not acting as journalists, they're acting as publicists, they're acting as propagandists. So, yeah, there's a lot of reformation needed all over the place, both in secular circles, but also in some Christian circles. We don't have to do public relations for God. We can tell the truth. God wants that. God can use that even when it's unpleasant. We don't want to, you know, like a Sunday school song, we don't feel our readers have to read our publication and be happy, 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 happy all the time. Some stuff should make us very sad. Some stuff should make us deeply prayerful and running to God for mercy. So there's one Christian publication called The Good News Newspaper, something like that. I mean, that's very truthful in some ways. The good news is the gospel. But insofar as they interpret it to mean they should only give good news about what's going on, that's not helpful. And that's not really thinking Christianly, thinking biblically about things. So we need to have psalms of praise. We also need to have lamentation. That's a good word. In 2006, you wrote a book on the politics of disaster, which is a, a very relevant topic for today. Looking back, what advice from your earlier thinking would you say is still relevant for Christians in our current situation? And what would you modify, if anything? I have to confess, I haven't looked back at the book. I, I, don't, <laughs> like, I don't like to read uh, We dug deep into the archives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, um, no, because I'll tell you, and this is one thing for, you know, all you, all y'all uh, at, an <laughs> academic, at an academic institution, passive, avoid passives. Academic writing is just terrible with passives. And sometimes when I look back at books I wrote a while ago, I see passives and no, no, no. So anyway, but to zero in on your question, what I recall in that book is that, well, two things. Number one, I was still writing and still am writing as a compassionate conservative. So I tend to really look at and be joyful about decentralized things. That book came out a year after Katrina. So the first part of the book was about the hurricane and all the rescues that were involved. And there are great stories, great stories and some terrible stories. Terrible stories tend to involve federal bureaucracy. And although I'm not a fan of federal bureaucrats, this was a particularly bad instance that they had a lot of red tape. There were doctors and nurses who wanted to hurry to New Orleans, but they had to first sit down with a day-long seminar about how to do things right, how to fill out the forms, how to do this and this and this. They, were, they wanted to be there on the front lines, and they had to jump through all these hoops. So there were stupid things there. And then there were great things. People going out on their boats 
individual people going out on their boats, the Cajun Navy to go rescue people who were on their houses and so forth, the people who came through generously with churches giving people a place to stay and individual people giving people spare bedrooms and so forth, churches being highly involved and you know, some of the big organizations like, you know, Baptist Relief and Samaritan's Purse and some of the others getting there very, very quickly and knowing exactly what to do at a time when the federal government help was still days or weeks or months away. So it was great just to see that. Anyway, that was what the first part of the book was about. And then trying to apply that emphasis on here's what churches can do and here's what they do do, both nationally and abroad. I've, I've traveled quite a bit to lots and lots of countries and seen what Christians do there, including groups like Compassion International. I went up the, uh, drove up the South American Highway through, excuse me, the Pan American Highway through Central America, stopping at Compassion places and seeing what they do. It's, it's great. And these other groups, seeing what I could, well, I could go on, but enough. Anyway, just seeing locally, nationally, internationally, what Christians do, that's far more effective than both our federal government and a lot of foreign governments tend to do. That was good to see. I did have a chapter in that book about pandemics, and I think I'll have to go look again at it. I, we put a part of it in World. We have a Saturday series every Saturday morning. We put up on the World website a longer article, sometimes a sermon, sometimes a, a book. So we put up a chapter from that. So I need to actually go and, and read it. But I think I saw that, there were, that we were not at all prepared this is back in 2006, but things really haven't changed that much. And, you know, this is trouble. But did I predict something which the really difficult thing about coronavirus itself, it's not that big a deal compared to some other viruses. But the nasty thing here is people can go around for days or weeks with no symptoms and be infecting others. That is something really new. And I did not anticipate that at all. And that's what makes this whole thing so troublesome right now. So I think I was pretty good on flus in general, but not this particular devilish one we are now facing. How is World Magazine looking to inform and support the Christian community in light of the current pandemic? Oh, I'm real pleased with what we've done so far, because not only in the magazine every two weeks, but every day on our website, we have street-level stories about what people are doing. We have, I have four children and five grandkids now, but when my kids were small, we really liked books by a children's author called Richard Scarry. No, that doesn't ring a bell with you. It's probably... I, I haven't read those. Yeah, go, go, yeah, they're still out there in print and books with titles like What Do People Do All Day? And just looking at, okay, here are bakers and barbers and truck drivers and, you know, what do people do all day? So we have every day in World on our website, we have a uh, Richard Scarry's name. It's, it's S-C-A-R-R-Y, two R's. But we have, you know, scary stories, scary Richard stories with one R, scary Richard scary stories about what people do all day in isolation. And, you know, we just day after day, we're coming out with creative things people are doing, ideas people have. We have, uh, what's it called? We have Inside the Outbreak, which looks at what organizations are doing. And these are church groups, businesses, and so forth, all kinds of organizations doing interesting, creative things. So I think that type of thing is a street-level story when I go back to the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, what I find most valuable in reading, uh, read a bunch of histories of that, what I find most valuable is the specific detail that people have, not just general stories. And this is something also very good for academic people and people who are, who are going to be pastors. You want to stay, if possible, low on the ladder of abstraction. 
high in the ladder of abstraction is dealing with vague concepts. The sermons people remember are based on important, crucial, biblical concepts that are sometimes abstract, but they make the points with specific detail and particular stories. And that's what we try to do journalistically as well. So when I look at the Spanish flu stories, I'm not so much interested in the, the big pronouncements and speeches people were giving, but what exactly was happening at street level, where in Colorado, if people want to be in a store, a small shop, only one person at a time can be in there. They're using social distancing, and anyone outside has to stay pretty much six feet apart. Or what exactly happened with schools were closed, and what did parents do? And again, this is what happened in 1918. At first, they weren't aware of how terrible it was going to be. But once they started seeing it, they quickly took action to basically develop social isolation in many, many cities. And that really saved, particularly it moved from east to west. And so the western cities saw this and learned. So that was useful. But this is to also, you know, we, we are emphasizing with our reporters, stay low on the ladder of abstraction give specific detail, gritty detail, which I think will be interesting and sometimes inspiring to people now, give people good ideas, but which historians 20 years or maybe 100 years from now, if people by any chance are still looking at World Magazine then, this will be valuable to the historians at that time. So that, that's basically our goal, to give specific detail, stay low in the ladder of abstraction, and show what's happening all over the country with the frontline people, but then also people we often don't think about who are also heroes, like the truck drivers, who are making sure we have food. So we want to tell those stories also. Well, Dr. Olasky, we couldn't be more thankful for your time with us today and the ministry that you lead at World Magazine. Well, thank you very much, and I'm glad to be helpful, and I hope a lot of people who are very good preachers are listening to this. Just because, let me just say one thing here, just because you're a pastor and, and preaching does not mean you have to have a book. Uh, and so guard against that. I hope people find this useful. Oh no, it's been wonderful. Your ideas just light up with truth and insight. So that's what we're most thankful for. And we hope that you'll be able to join us again in the future. Well, thank you. All right, thank you and God bless you all. Join us next time as we talk with Dr. Derek Thomas. In the meantime, you can visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree to learn about the new online offerings available at Westminster Theological Seminary.